going beyond the headlines, getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. Greetings and salutations, my friends. A happy Thursday. Glad to be back with you. A big thank you as well to Jody Hughes for filling in for me yesterday. And all of full disclosure here. Uh, for Christmas, I'm, I'm a big believer in getting um, experiences for my loved ones rather than getting presents and that kind of thing. So uh, over the last couple of years, I'm, I've been big into getting concerts for my parents. And so what I decided uh, this Christmas, I got them tickets to go see Matthew Good. He was doing an acoustic show. He's one of my one of their favorite artists. So I thought I'm going to get you guys a couple of tickets to go see them at uh, Burt Church Theater in Airdrie. And so one of the challenges, though, with this show is I can't go and meet with them beforehand and, like I said on Tuesday, go and steal some of their goodies from the garden that have been sitting in the root cellar. So, yeah, I I might have gotten some carrots and potatoes and onions and some other goodies, cookies, because mom's baking is the best. Uh that notwithstanding. And we went and saw a show, went and had some supper and just had a, a real good time. Great show. If you've never, that was the first time I'd ever been to Bird Church Theater. It's a great little theater, real small, real intimate. Uh, it was a show that went for three hours or something when you include the, the opener. Uh, it was a great show. So uh, I know he's back through Calgary with the full band uh, in a couple of months. So by all means, if you're, if you're an alternative rock fan, by all means, go check them out because it is worth the price of admission. It is Valentine's Day. And so I pose the question, what is love? Can you actually define it? Is there something in your brain that sends that signal that, hey, this is the best kind of love? Dr. Helen Fisher, a, bio- a biological anthropologist, will join us after four o'clock to dive into that very topic. And we'll also get into some of our history. Charles Daniels, if you don't know his story, we'll fill you in about who he is, who he is, and why he is significant to the city of Calgary after five o'clock with Bashir Mohammed, an online historian is what I'm calling him. Uh, he does some great stuff on Twitter and on his website. Uh, talking about the history of this province and some of the things that um, maybe we don't know about. But we're going to open things up right off the hop, talking foreign interference. It's been a pretty common thing to talk about. Russia, China, Iran, who's all involved, and what are the implications here in Canada as we head towards, yes, a federal election campaign. We'll talk to Marcus Kolga, who has written about this very subject just recently, next here on Calgary Today. All right. Whether it was food, which we talked about on Tuesday, whether it's the oil industry, which a lot of people are paying a lot of attention to with who's interfering with what, and American politics, Canadian politics, everybody's talking about who's interfering with what. And... Talking about that lately has been Marcus Kolga, who wrote a a really good piece in the Globe and Mail over the last couple of weeks. And I wanted to bring him on to talk more about this particular topic. Uh, And he joins us now. Marcus, thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for having me on. We've heard all kinds of things about interference, whether it be from the Russians or the Chinese or you name it. It seems like everybody's got a a hand in everyone else's cookie jar, it seems, especially on the online side. And I'm wondering, from your standpoint, here in Canada, are we doing enough to combat this? Or have we even started down the right path towards doing the right thing? 
Well, look, I, th- I think the announcement by the government last week that uh, that they're taking some measures to uh, to combat the threat of foreign disinformation and influence campaigns is a good start. You know, I've I've been fighting for this for four years to just have some sort of acknowledgement. So at least we've acknowledged that there is a problem, and it's not just Russian, it's not just Chinese, it's also Iranian. Um, and uh, we've acknowledged the problem, and now we're taking steps to... Uh, to do something about it, um, which again is a very, very good start, um, but there are a lot of gaps in between. Um, you know, social media uh, is still it will continue to be, be a problem. There's no regulation there. There's no um, uh, accountability that uh, uh, that these social media platforms will be held uh, held to. And there's and there are gaps as far as uh, coordinating the entire effort. So there's still lots of work to be done, especially. Um, considering that we only have a few months left before the uh, next federal election. How serious of an issue is this, one? And two, to what extent is the seriousness? What are these uh, foreign entities looking to do or trying to do in persuading us in whatever opinion we might have? Well, look, in the last election, in 2015, um, there was clearly a specific party that the Russians were hoping would win, uh, given the direction of the Harper government on Russia, on its uh, invasion of Ukraine, on its illegal annexation of Crimea, um, they were tough on Russia. And Russia wasn't particularly interested in seeing another conservative government. Um, So there were clearly uh, efforts at play uh, to help uh, support anyone who wanted to essentially uh, remove them from office in the election. Um, this time around, there's no real clear um, horse that the, the Russians would have in this race. So um, what you're going to see, I think, is a real amplification of uh, narratives on the far left and then narratives on the far right. You know, the far right will be targeted with anti-immigration sort of messaging. And the far left, uh, well, you know, pipelines, that's, that's a big deal. And we're seeing a lot of... Uh, uh, information about uh, the pipeline issue and the environment being targeted. So um, what they're going to try and do is split our society as far apart as uh, possible. And through that, there is a process, and it's not just the election, I should add, it's, it's in our entire democracy. There's an, uh, the, what they're trying to do is erode trust in each other and erode our trust in media by, uh, by, by pitting us against each other with these very divisive issues. So I think that's what you're going to see is this amplification of these uh, extreme narratives uh, in the next coming months and even past the coming, uh, coming October election. How much of it isn't just trying to cause chaos in Western civilization, but also to reaffirm their own powers that be to say, hey, you know what, if you really want democracy, look at what those guys are doing over there and look at how uh, I know in in Russia's case, for example, is, hey, we've got this, I think it's called organized democracy, where it's it's a lot more, uh, it's it looks as though it is just one guy in charge of the whole thing. And, uh, you know, they don't have to worry about the, the chaos over that's happening over here. You're absolutely right. That's a really good point. And part of it is, I mean, as I mentioned before, it's sowing chaos within our own democracy. But um, it's also tearing apart the cohesion that we have, say, in alliances like NATO. You know, uh, Vladimir Putin cannot compete on a military level or an economic level with, uh, with the West working together. So he cannot compete with NATO. He is far better off with, uh, uh, with us falling apart, our alliances falling apart, and then going after individual parts. Because, he look, he wants to 
um, reassert his control uh, over Eastern Europe and, and, and the rest of Europe as well. As far as the, uh, the, um, his economy is concerned, I mean, it's doing very poorly. Um, you've seen gas prices, everyone has seen gas prices plummeting, um, and he relies on a hot, the, the high price of oil. Um, his economy is plummeting, um, and his, his people are not happy with it. So uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, he wants he would like nothing more than to point to the West and say, well, look, if it's democracy that you want, is that what you're interested in? I mean, the U.S. is a perfect example. It's 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 not pretty what's happening there. And he would and he's tried to do the same thing in countries like France, in Germany, in the Netherlands. Look at Brexit. We're next. Uh, because he is threatened by Canada. Canada's uh, moral leadership, at least in, in foreign policy affairs, uh, you know, we'll put SNC Lavalin on the side right now. Mm-hmm. But on uh, foreign policy issues, it's, uh, we have a pretty good name. And that is threatening because no one else is taking up that leadership. And uh, Canada seemed to be doing so. So to push us and, uh, and suppress us and make us uh, seem like we're falling apart, uh, that's, that's one of his objectives for sure. And one of the crazy parts about it is as much as it makes Canadians get pinned against one another, what it also does is it forces us to look over our shoulder at every other country and go, are you responsible? Are you responsible? Are you responsible? It's it's weird because now yeah. we're in this uh, world of antitrust. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's unfortunate, but it's probably not a bad thing to keep an eye out for what's happening. Look, I mean, this is, we're entering this new digital era where we have information that's available from all sorts of various platforms, social media, websites, you know, and it's, it's been emerging. There are some of us who have been saying, you know, we better start paying attention to this stuff, and we finally are. And that's, that's not a bad thing that we're looking over the shoulders. I mean, we're, I'm, I was just looking at the data that was released with this uh, CBC recent report about, uh, about the uh, tweets and some 9 yeah. million tweets that were, that were done. I looked at the, the 2015 sort of bracket just before our election campaign, and it's, it's amazing. The number of tweets uh, from Iranian now banned accounts that were tweet- tweeting about the refugee crisis and that young uh, Syrian boy, Alan Kurdi, um, just before the election. And that was really was a transformative event uh, when it came to that election. So we're just starting to sort of um, look at information, get data that's, that's linked to elections and various big issues. Um, and it's, it's important that we start doing that because, uh, look, uh, when we go, come into this election in October, Canadians need to be aware of where they're getting their information. They need to look at it critically so that they're not basing important decisions like they do at the election box based on false news. Marcus Kolga is our guest. He wrote a really good piece on political interference, misinformation, the campaigns on all sides. And again, I go back to uh, Russia Rising. It's a podcast put together by Jeff Sample. We chatted with Jeff a couple of weeks ago about it. And one of the first things that he mentioned was the Russian troll farms. They actually have people who have been hired to go in and tweet on random things in North America with the whole hope not necessarily to, hey, we want this candidate to win or this candidate to win. We just want to create this sense of chaos around North America so that our own people look at what are hap- what's happening in North America and go, do we want that or do we want our own version of democracy? And even beyond that, what it's doing is it's stoking the fires of division here in Canada. 
Marcus Kolga, we'll, we'll, uh, I've got a few more questions for you, Marcus. So uh, when, if you can hang on the line, we'll be right back. This is Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. We are joined by Marcus Kolga, who uh, has written a piece in the Globe and Mail. I posted it on Twitter at Calgary Today if you want to check it out. And one of the things, Marcus, we were talking about how it kind of pits Canadians against one another. And even in the upcoming election, I've seen a few different posts on both sides, which I've had to refute the claims because they're memes that everybody kind of assumes, oh, it's a meme. It's got to be true. Yet that's not necessarily the case. So it's one of those things where we're really fighting an uphill battle on. And that's kind of one of the things that you wanted to uh, shed some light on when you wrote this piece. Yeah, well, I'm glad to hear that uh, you're doing that. And I hope other Canadians are doing that as well. I mean, we can rely on the government to, to raise awareness to a certain degree. But it's, it's really going to be incumbent upon us those of us who are paying attention to this stuff, to let our friends know. I've seen the same thing. I mean, it was, I think, before Christmas. Um, there was a, uh, a, a retired uh, gentleman who I know on Facebook who started posting about the, uh, the caravan that was, uh, that was going to make its way up, up through Mexico and take over the southern United States. The photo that was attached to this, clearly, I mean, it was a false news story, was a picture of some policemen beating up some, it looked like young people, and it was connected to the caravan. I looked at the photo and I said, I haven't seen any violence. And I did a Google image search, a reverse image search, mm-hmm. and it turned out that that picture was from uh, four years earlier at a Mexican uh, uh, ra- a students' rally where police broke it up with violence. And so they took somebody had taken that image and sort of mischaracterized and, and superimposed it onto this other story about the caravan to generate fear. And we're seeing a lot of that. So you know, Canadians really need to be a little bit more aware and do the things that you're doing. You know, when you see something like this, let your friends know and call them on it. Cause usually they'll say, Oh dear, mm-hmm. I didn't realize I was spreading f- uh, fake news and they'll take it down. Yeah. And I think the, the key, and I, I hope anyways, is that the, I'm, I personally am on a little bit of a mission to civilize, but I hope what ends up coming out of this is that w- the politicians, our leaders of, of uh, all the parties start to band together on some of this stuff and, and not yeah. spread a lot of it because that's where I think the line will certainly get crossed is that we'll start to see politicians who are sharing those images or sharing those memes without giving it second thought to what might actually be behind it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think there's a, there's a real, real big risk of our politicians being baited into um, spreading those sorts of uh, false news items, misinformation and such, running up into the election. So one of the things, going back to this, this government announcement, one of the most critical things that the, all the major political parties need to do is to get together and have regular, at least weekly meetings um, and have an understanding if they see these sorts of things to share them amongst each other and in, so as to ensure that they're not spreading uh, false news and getting into trouble, these false sort of um, political battles um, based on fake news. So that's, it's ultra critical that these, uh, the parties work together on this and, and don't fall for uh, false, uh, false news. If you want to read Marcus's uh, column, it's called Canada's Plan to Counter a Foreign Interference is a Good Start, but the Work's Not Done. I'll post it on my Twitter, at Calgary Today. Marcus, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Thanks for having me on. Marcus Kolga from the McDonald Laurier Institute. And it's fascinating even just the the responses over the text line already. And, oh, is this a way to get into free, uh, freedom of speech? And 
I, I guess it begs that question, but at the same time, why are we defending somebody's ability to lie for political gain is the question. Like, why can't we hold people to uh, responsible for their actions online? And beyond that, Marcus brought up a great point, is getting all the parties to discuss this in a civil way. Because it's clear, and again, I go back to the fact that both sides are being played here. And I think we as Canadians are getting played here. Because we're getting, uh, we're being exposed is what it amounts to. We're being exposed for uh, for a lot of our own faults. And so I hope we open our eyes to that. I hope we see the light and realize that, again, we're getting played. This is Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. Congratulations going out to Nova, getting that second set of tickets to go see the Calgary Home and Garden Show uh, later on this month. Like I said, a couple more giveaways to get to before the end of the show today. All right. All about the love today being Valentine's Day and all, but is there something scientific to it? Which got me to thinking about that song, What is Love? I was going to play it. I thought about singing it for a second there. I went, no, I'm going to spare you guys because I want you guys to still love me at the end of the day. Uh, Joining us now, she's pretty well known, uh, Dr. Helen Fisher, joining us to talk about the science of love. Dr. Fisher, thanks so much for the time today. I'm delighted to be with you. I'm not going to start off with the question of what is love, but I am going to ask the question, can you actually decode this feeling that we have from the cockles of our hearts? Well, I've certainly tried. I've been doing it for many years, written lots of books on it, but I think I got my biggest understanding when I put people who were madly in love into a brain scanner and watch what goes on in the brain when you look at a photograph of your sweetheart and get that incredible rush. And uh, from a, I mean, I certainly know the traits of it and all kinds of things, but the bottom line is what happens in the brain is a tiny little factory near the very base of the brain starts out pumping dopamine. And dopamine gives you that elation, the focus, the motivation, the energy uh, of intense romantic love. And in fact, it's a drive. I thought romantic love would be an emotion, but it lies in the very basic parts of the brain, um, right near brain regions that uh, orchestrate thirst and hunger. So thirst and hunger keep you alive today, and romantic love drives you to, to fall for somebody and pass your DNA into tomorrow. At the very basic level, it's a survival mechanism that evolved millions of years ago to start the mating process. That's funny how we associate love with the heart, and yet it is something, as you've studied, seems to be coming right from the old noggin. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, we've evolved three distinctly different brain systems for mating and reproduction. One is the sex drive. Second is feelings of intense romantic love, and the third is feelings of deep attachment. So all different kinds of love are basic combinations of these three things, sex drive, romantic love, and and attachment. But, you know, I looked at uh, the last 40 years of of, um, descriptions of romantic love, and I also looked at poetry around the world, and there's a very distinct uh, group of traits, things that occur to you, uh, I mean, things that happen to you when you fall madly in love. It's a very distinct feeling. Mm-hmm. How do you decipher between love and lust? It's quite, they're very different. I mean, lust is just sexual gratification. I mean, you can feel it when you're driving around in your car or read a book or see a movie or see your boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever, but it's a craving for sex. And romantic love is a very different feeling. When it, when you're madly in love, here are the traits of it. 
suddenly a person takes on special meaning. Everything about them becomes special. Their car is different from every other car in the parking lot, the street they live on, the music that they like. Everything becomes special. You have this intense, intense energy. You can walk all night and talk till dawn. Uh, evasion when things are going well. Mood swings into terrible despair when they're not going well. A real craving for sex with them. But what you really want from them is to is them is, is emotional union. To have them say that they love you, that they want to be with you. The three main characteristics of romantic love are obsessive thinking about somebody, uh, high motivation uh, to, uh, to win them, and um, and just craving for them. So. Um, you know, you can have sex with a lot of people and not be in love with them. Mm. Uh, you can have sex with yourself and not be in love. I mean, <laughs> um, but when you're in love with somebody, it's, uh, somebody's camping in your head. You can't get them out. You're obsessed with them. You're focused on them. One of the things that seems to be prevalent, I know we talk, uh, everybody talks divorce rates and falling out of love and all that kind of thing. And I wonder, it, it is possible, I think a lot of people miss perceive a fight or a disagreement as being uh this is the end you know right and and so how do you get over that how do you manage uh, how's the human brain got to get over that whole idea that hey just one disagreement doesn't mean the world's coming apart yeah well you know i mean there's ways to fight and uh so that you so that you don't have the world fall apart i mean Psychologists will say, you know, don't show contempt, uh, don't uh, listen actively, don't threaten divorce, and and get past it. I mean, you can do a timeout and walk into a different room. You can figure out various strategies. But what's interesting is, you know, I, I put people in brain scanners and study romantic love, and we put some people in the scanner, fMRI scanner, uh, who were in love, not just loving, but in love long-term. They were all married an average of 21 years. And um, we looked into their brains to find out what brain regions become active in a long-term happy partnership. And it really gave me a clue on how to get over a bad argument. The three things that, the three brain regions that become active in a long-term happy partnership is one, a brain region linked with empathy. Two, a brain region um, that is linked with um, controlling your own stress and your own emotions. And third, a brain region uh, linked with positive illusions, the ability to overlook what you don't like about somebody and focus on what you do. So in long-term happy partnerships, you can overcome a real uh, bad argument if you express some empathy, control yourself, and overlook the negative. Talk about the different kinds of love. And I'll make the argument that I can love my family and I can love my friends and it's a lot different than the the emotional love of the, my fiance, as an example. You know, you you can have that different style of love there. Well, um, you know, in a really good relationship, you want to have all three basic brain um, uh, pathways activated in in a romance. You want the sex drive to uh, be active. You you want the uh, feelings of that intense uh, craving for the person, emotional craving of romantic love, and you want to feel that deep sense of of of, of commitment and and um, you know connection when you're madly in love. You know when you w- with your friends and your family. You don't want to have sex with them. I mean, under normal circumstances anyway. (laughs) The sex drive isn't there. And you don't feel that intense romance uh, for them. You don't lie in bed thinking about them when you go to bed Mm -hmm. and 
wake up thinking about them and feel possessive about them and be upset if they don't call and don't write. You don't get butterflies in your stomach when you see your mother or, or your best friend uh, when you're going to go play a game of sports or whatever. You know, Romantic Love is a very specific uh, brain system linked with very specific traits. There's craving for the person, the obsessive thinking about the person. Uh, somebody's camping in your head, as I said, and uh, you can't get them out. You don't feel that for, you know, your friends. You don't obsessively think about them or crave them or feel possessive of them, etc. So it's it's not too hard when you actually understand what love, what romantic love is to distinguish it from feelings of deep attachment. You feel, we all feel deep attachment to friends and to family and even the family dog and even your ideas. It's a different brain system. Right. Is there a different kind of love in different parts of the world? Um. Not this kind of thing. You know, I don't study the American brain. I study the human brain. Mm -hmm. And when you take a look at love poetry around the world, it's all the same. It's all the same. I've I've read poetry from, I don't know, 40 cultures and hunting and gathering societies. You know, around the world, people have poems and and songs and and dances and myths and legends about love. And, of course, in in sophisticated, technically technically sophisticated societies, you have operas and, and plays and ballets and and theater and holidays and they're all the same they all they're all expressing the same thing this craving for a person the obsessive thinking about the person the possessiveness of the person the high motivation to win the person uh, the uncontrollable thoughts about the person everywhere in the world you see the same basic traits this is a brain system like the fear system Everywhere in the world you can be scared, everywhere in the world you can be angry, and everywhere in the world you can be in love. Yeah, it evolved millions of years ago. It's a basic brain system that evolved to, for mating and reproduction. It's, not, it, it's going to be with us as long as we are a species. It's not going to... Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Uh, Dr. Fisher, I do appreciate the time today. Thanks so much. And thank you, and happy Valentine's Day. And you as well. February does mark Black History Month, and one of the stories that hasn't been told a lot, but Bashir Mohammed would like to see more talked about at least, is the story of Charles Daniels here in Calgary. For more on that, we are joined by Bashir. Thanks so much for the time today, sir. Yeah, thanks for having me. Tell us the story of Charles Daniels and what you've done in your as you've researched this topic. Yeah, so Charles Daniels, um, he he was Calgarian and he was a porter uh, back in the early 1900s. And for those who don't know, a porter were those who uh, basically helped people during train uh, train travel. And in 1914, actually the same year Viola Desmond was born, he walked into the Grand Theater to purchase a ticket to watch King Lear, but he was refused entry. They wanted him to sit in the balcony. Uh, his ticket was for the orchestra, but they wanted him to sit in the balcony, and he refused that. So he got kicked out, and he decided to sue the theater. What followed was a court case between him and the theater management, where he requested a thousand dollars of damages. Now, the interesting thing about this case—well, uh, I guess the first thing is that this was in 1914, so it was 30 years before uh, Rosa Parks, uh, 40 years before Viola Desmond, but he actually won his case. And he won not because the judge realized, you know, this was messed up. He won actually because the theater 
lawyers didn't show up to court. So he won by default. <laughs> um, so, and later on, they tried to have the case reopened, but they weren't really successful. But the interesting thing about all this is that um, even though he didn't win, like based off the judge siding with him, he still won his case. Uh, in a time where black immigration was being heavily opposed and years before um, a lot of major civil rights movements in North America, um, like in the U.S., but also in Canada, and not much is really known about him, which surprises me, but I hope that he's able to get some recognition. That was the one thing as I was looking through and trying to find some different stories, and I, I remember hearing this story when you first started talking about it in the fall, and this is a, a groundbreaking case, even if it was one of those cases where it was win by default because the other guy's lawyers didn't show up. When you think about it, like Violet Desmond, she basically did the same thing Daniels did, uh, and she's on our $10 bill. So it shows that people are interested in these type of stories, and it shows that people value these stories. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. Every historic article I read about this case, so like when the newspapers were covering it, they would often quote the theater management or Daniel's lawyer, but they never quoted Daniel's himself. So the impactful thing was actually, A, finding out that his court case still exists, and B, reading the original examination, which has one hour of dialogue, like, written, uh, where Daniel tells the story in his own words. And that was really powerful, because it kind of, uh, well, it allowed, like, it was me reading the story through his words versus through uh, people who may have not necessarily found the importance or um, power in what he was actually doing. To your... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no, I was just going to say, yeah, so this case is also unique in that sense, too. Mm. Uh, And it's, it's not the only one in Alberta, actually. There was a few other similar cases. I was going to get to that part in a second, but I wanted to go on from from Mr. Daniel's perspective. After the case and in the years afterwards, have you been able to find any kind of um, other writings or any other documentation that would have shown that he did try to tell his story? Did anybody try to tell uh, tell it in a different light, and uh, whether it's through a book or through any kind of um, m- memoriam, I suppose? Yeah, so I, like, the years after this happened, I couldn't find anything, but there have been historians that have written about Daniels. Um, And usually it's in passing. Like, for example, there was a book that was written about the Sherman Grand Theater and its history, and Daniels' case was used more so to serve as a vehicle for what happened to the theater management and his case to illustrate how there was kind of a falling out within the theater management. Uh, I know Cheryl Fogel, who's a Calgary playwright and also Calgary historian. She's actually directing a documentary about John Ware, but she wrote an article uh, about Daniels and there's one other historian, but for one reason or another, there hasn't really been this, um, I guess, movement to make him as recognized as other figures. And I guess to give an example, like, Viola Desmond, like, if you think 10 years ago, not many people uh, really heard her story. But the reason I think a lot of people know her now was because of a very large education campaign through a Heritage Minute, um, through writing, like, I think some people even wrote children books mm-hmm. so that kids could learn about this. So it's not that Daniel's story will never be widely told. It's that 
there's still opportunity for his story to be told in, you know, very meaningful mediums so that, you know, a lot more people know mm-hmm. about what happened. Because at the end of the day, you also learn more about Calgary and how it was like in 1914. If you read the court case, they talk a lot about Calgary back then. Mm-hmm. And it's really, uh, I guess, eye-opening just sitting there and reading it. Bashir, stay on the line. I have a few more questions for you. Bashir Mohammed is our guest as we talk about the history of Charles Daniels here in Calgary. This is Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. Bashir Mohammed is our guest. If you look him up on Twitter, at Bashir Mohammed, you'll find all kinds of tidbits about our history, and in particular when it comes to segregation and that kind of thing. And, and one of the stories that's come out over the last few months is the story of Charles Daniels. But I am curious, Bashir, about the history of you and why you're so enticed by this subject. What got you into it in the first place? Yeah, um, well, it comes from, so I, I wasn't born uh, in Alberta, but I came here when I was really young at three years old. And I came uh, as a refugee, but I grew up here. I did all my schooling here from elementary to university. And throughout that time, I didn't learn about this history. And there's a moment where I was kind of challenging, or not challenging, I was kind of reflecting a lot personally about what it means to be Canadian, but also somebody with, you know, even though I grew up here, I still had this whole other identity too. Mm -hmm. And I was curious if there are other people who looked like me who contributed to the province and if i reflected on the curriculum and what i learned the answer would be no but i wanted to do my own digging which is where actually i read some of those articles by charles fogel where she talks about the early wave of black immigration and i saw these photos of you know black albertans over 100 years ago uh in the province um and they contributed a lot like john Ware, he was a huge influence for the calgary stampede um, you have the uh, black farmers who came and created rural homesteads. So that just made me feel a closer connection to the province. Mm-hmm. And that kind of made me wonder if there was a bit more to this and if I could, um, I guess, contribute to telling some of the more obscure things. So personally, I focus a lot actually on government policies like segregation. For example, in Alberta, there was segregation at swimming pools, movie theaters, bars, Mm -hmm. uh, even hospitals, actually. Um, But that's usually a footnote in a lot of these books or sources. So what I do is I dive into the footnotes and try to learn as much as I can about it. Um, Actually, right now, I'm writing about hospitals and and segregation because in the 20s and 30s, black people were refused at many hospitals. Uh, at least in Edmonton. Mm-hmm. Um, also, like healthcare is one example, but there's a whole bunch of interesting things that haven't really been looked at, and a lot of it is painstaking because a lot of it isn't cataloged in the archives. But the end result is you end up understanding where you grew up better. Like I end up understanding the province, but I basically like it's the only province I the only place I really know, like, very well. Mm-hmm. And then you end up understanding it better. Um, but also you understand the legacies of these policies. And, you know, we do have a lot of problems nowadays. And a lot of this, I think, is based on the principle is if we want to solve those problems, we need to, A, uh, acknowledge that there is one and the impacts 
these policies have to this day. So that's one reason why I spent a lot of time mm-hmm. researching this. It's definitely a great follow if you want to on Twitter at Bashir Mohammed. You can also go to bashirmohammed.com slash blog for uh, a lot more reading in that. Bashir, uh, again, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, great to chat with you. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to the Calgary Today podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, and tune in. When you do, don't forget to write the show and leave a comment. Until next time, my friends.